Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has appointed his deputy, William Ruto as the country's acting president. South Sudan's Legislative Assembly is currently considering passage of a National Security Service bill and political parties in Mozambique are busy with their last campaigns for the upcoming presidential elections expected to take place next week. In economics, more praise for South Africa's new Reserve Bank governor and in sports news, teams across the continent are gearing up for the 2015 AFCON qualifiers this weekend. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. At least eight people have been killed in Cameroon in a rocket attack blamed on the militant group Boko Haram in neighboring Nigeria. A police officer says Boko Haram militants fired the rocket from the Nigerian town of Banki, which hit the town of Amchide in the far north of Cameroon. Boko Haram took control of Banki. Ban- several weeks ago. In a separate attack, Boko Haram militants killed seven people in the town of Gamdu in the remote northeast of Nigeria. The victims were reportedly beheaded. Kenya's intelligence and security agencies need to improve their coordination and command structures to avoid a repeat of the slow response to attacks in June that killed about 65 people. This is according to a report released by the Independent Policing Oversight Authority. The report echoes complaints heard last year when militants attacked Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall. It also suggests the shortcomings are still not being addressed. 
Gunmen killed dozens of people in the coastal town of Mpeketoni on the north coast during a nighttime raid in June and raided a nearby village the next night. More attacks were launched elsewhere in July. The report on Mpeketoni said ethnic, land and religious tensions among communities in the area might have been used to draw in locals to help carry out the attacks. An appeal to end rape and violence in South Sudan has been made by a senior United Nations official, the Secretary-General Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict, Zainab Hawa Bangura, is currently in the country to discuss what measures can be taken to prevent and respond to widespread violations taking place. Since fighting broke out in South Sudan last December, incidents of rape, forced abortion, sexual harassment and murder by all sides have been reported. Bangura describes what people of all ages had experienced. During the latest outbreak of conflict in South Sudan, many innocent women, men, girls and boys were subjected to horrible attacks. These included rapes, gang rapes, rapes with guns and bullets, and sexual slavery. After being raped, some victims were mutilated and disgraced. Some were killed or died of the injuries they sustained. A Spanish nurse has contracted Ebola after treating two patients who died from the disease at a Madrid hospital. The woman was part of a medical team that treated two elderly Spanish missionaries who died of Ebola shortly after they were repatriated to Spain from Liberia and Sierra Leone in August and September. Ebola has caused 3,439 deaths out of 7,478 cases across five West African nations, Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Nigeria and Senegal. And finally, the murder trial of British businessman Shreen Dewani has been adjourned until tomorrow in the Western Cape High Court in South Africa. Yesterday, Dewani pleaded not guilty to all charges, including conspiracy to commit murder. He allegedly arranged for the killing of his wife Annie in November 2010. In his plea statement read out by his lawyer, Francia Fanzel, Duane said he's bisexual and had sexual relations with men and women. He also admitted to having met taxi driver Zola Tongo, who was, according to him, arranging a surprise helicopter trip for his new bride. Lyndon Khan reports. Taxi driver Zola Tongo drove them to Guguletu. He says the car came to a stop and he heard banging on the door. A man asked Tongo, have you got it? Referring to the 10,000 rand Dewani had set aside for a planned surprise helicopter ride around the city. Dewani says the man had a gun and his wife began screaming. He says his wife was ordered to hand over her rings before Shrin Dewani was shouted at to get out of the vehicle. As the door did not open, he said he climbed out of the window. Dewani then said the vehicle drove off and he frantically asked a passerby to call the police. However, they did not understand what he was saying. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has appointed his deputy, William Ruto, as the country's acting president for the duration. He will be away attending his case at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. The decision means that President Kenyatta will attend the ICC status conference in an individual capacity and not as head of state. Mwagi Konyo reports from Nairobi. In a hard-hitting address to both houses of the National Assembly and the Senate here in Nairobi, President Uru Kenyatta faulted ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Ben Suda for accusing the Kenyan government of not according her sufficient cooperation in the case. During his speech, President Uru Kenyatta announced that he has appointed his deputy William Ruto as Kenya's acting president for the duration he'll be away attending his case at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. I now take the extraordinary and unprecedented step of invoking Article 147.3 of the Constitution and I will shortly issue the legal notice necessary to appoint Honorable William Ruto, the Deputy President, as Acting President while I attend the status conference at The Hague in the Netherlands. This means that President Uru Kenyatta will attend the ICC status conference at The Hague in his individual capacity and not as Head of State. He says that this will ensure that the sovereignty and democratic will of Kenyans will not be subjected to a foreign jurisdiction. However, President Uru Kenyatta explained how criminal charges against humanity were made against him following the 2007 post-election violence. Four years ago on the 15th day of December 2010, I watched in disbelief as I was named with five others as one of those suspected of bearing the greatest responsibility for the 2007-8 post-election violence. This was the beginning of my long and arduous journey to defend my name in the face of these serious allegations. I wish to reiterate here for all that my conscience is clear, has been clear, and will remain forever clear that I am innocent of all the accusations that have been leveled against me. After all this, the prosecutor of the ICC has since last December and as recently as last month admitted to the judges that the available evidence is insufficient to prove alleged criminal responsibility beyond reasonable doubt. I wish to reiterate here for all that my conscience is clear, has been clear and will remain forever clear that I am innocent of all the accusations that have been leveled against me. President Uru Kenyatta had earlier requested the ICC judges to be allowed to attend the ICC proceedings through the video link from Nairobi. But his request was rejected by the ICC and was ordered to personally attend the crucial session at The Hague on Wednesday this week. And in his address to both houses of parliament, President Uru Kenyatta claimed that the Rome statute that established the International Criminal Court has been weakened by partiality. Within Assembly of State Parties, a number of members observe that the Rome Statute, which is ultimately derived from the equality of states as espoused in the UN Charter, is weakened by partiality. The Africa of Nkrumah, Nyerere, Benbella, Nasser, Chief Albert Luthuli, and Jomo Kenyatta raised those years ago about the risks of undermining the sovereign equality of states. 
These concerns remain valid to this day. The African Union in its wisdom resolved in October of last year that to safeguard the constitutional order, stability and integrity of member states, no charges shall be commenced or continued before any international court or tribunal against any serving AU head of state or government or anybody acting or entitled to act in such a capacity during their terms in office. Kenya's Attorney General has already left Nairobi for The Hague in order to present the government's position against allegation that it was not cooperating with the office of the Chief Prosecutor. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. South Sudan's Legislative Assembly is currently considering passage of a National Security Service Bill. The third reading was scheduled for this past Wednesday, but has now been pushed until today. Amnesty International is calling on members of Parliament to ensure that the bill is revised so that it is in keeping with South Sudan's transitional constitution and with regional and international human rights law. Elizabeth Deng, South Sudan researcher with Amnesty International, says South Sudan's transitional constitution defines the mandate of the National Security Service as information gathering, analysis and advice to the relevant authorities. According to South Sudan's transitional constitution, the National Security Service is supposed to be an intelligence-gathering body. The constitution provides that it should focus on information-gathering, analysis, and advice to the relevant authorities. But since South Sudan gained independence in 2011, the National Security Service has been operating without any legal mandate. So there is no law defining the structure, the organization, and the specific mandate of the National Security Service. So that is what this bill being considered by Parliament does. Unfortunately, we think that the bill grants the National Security Service with powers that go beyond the limited constitutional mandate that it is given. So in this draft bill, the National Security Service is granted sweeping powers to arrest, detain, seize property, conduct searches, monitor communications. So our call is for these police powers to be removed from the National Security Service and to be held with an appropriate law enforcement agency. The National Security Service, therefore, would focus on intelligence gathering and liaise and coordinate with law enforcement, you know, when it needs to rely on police powers to carry out its responsibilities. Now, you say that... Since South Sudan gained independence in 2011, the National Security Service has operated with no legal mandate. Now, just elaborate on that, because, I mean, if it has no legal mandate, then how can there then be the National Security Service bill? Well, I mean, the bill is a draft. It's what's being considered by the Legislative Assembly, and it's this bill that would provide a legal mandate to the Security Service. We believe, and since 2011, we've been calling for a law to be passed to specify, you know, what the role of this institution is supposed to be, whether there's a complete mechanism, provisions for accountability, and really to define and limit its mandate. And so that is what this bill does. You know, so while we think that a law is is very necessary, it's really critical that any law passed ensure appropriate limits on the powers of the security service and that it provide individuals adequate opportunity for redress 
you've touched a little bit on what the National Security Service Bill entails. But now what I'm trying to figure out here is then what would the police be doing? Right. We've documented numerous cases of arbitrary arrest and detention by the National Security Service. And particularly since December, they've been engaging in harassment and threats to to journalists in violation of the right to freedom of expression. So they do engage in arrests and detentions. What we're calling for is, is that these powers should be maintained only by the police. And... You've just mentioned that things have gotten worse since December of last year. Do you think this National Security Service Bill has anything to do with the ongoing conflict in South Sudan? Well, this is legislation that you know has been recognized as a gap in South Sudan's legal framework. I think since December, there are increased concerns about how the National Security Service is engaging in, in arbitrary arrests and detentions, often in only known locations. There have also been concerns raised about their involvement in human rights violations in the context of the conflict. I think given the context of the conflict, it's particularly important to ensure that their powers are appropriately restricted because in this context, I think there is an additional tendency to abuse powers of arrest and detention, and these are powers that really need to be closely monitored. There needs to be judicial and prosecutorial oversight, which there hasn't been for national security detentions in the past. In this bill, it allows the National Security Service to arrest and detain, but it doesn't make clear whether any judge or any attorney would be involved in those arrests and detentions. It also doesn't make clear whether any warrants would be required for these acts. Do you know what is the general feeling among the South Sudanese themselves about the probable passage of this bill? Did you get any feeling maybe during your research? The South Sudanese public is very concerned. There's you know, broad awareness that the National Security Service you know, is a rogue institution that has been violating human rights and that its mandate needs to be appropriately limited and restricted. And so I think South Sudanese public are anxious for it to have a, a law, but a lot of concerns about the really sweeping powers that this law gives the security service. I also want to emphasize that the law doesn't provide appropriate oversight and complaint mechanisms. In the law, it says that any complaints against the National Security Service should be made to the National Security Service itself. Even if they are initially directed to another public institution, they should be forwarded to the NSS according to this law. It also grants members of an NSS broad criminal immunity, which is also concerning. Elizabeth Deng, South Sudan researcher with Amnesty International, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Jose Khodingake. It's 8.17 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka Na Unai.
The Netherlands-based company Royal Philips has opened its first community life center in Kenya. Located in Kiambu region in the northern border of the capital Nairobi, the facility is a joint collaboration between the Philips Africa Innovation Hub and Government of Kiambu. To give more details about this initiative, here's Martin van Harpen, head of the Philips Innovations Hub. Well, the mission of Philips is to improve the lives of people through meaningful innovation. And one of the things that we are committed to is with the UN Millennium Development Goals 4 and 5 to reduce uh, maternal and infant mortality. Now, one way that you can do that is by improving and making dramatic improvement in uh, the access to quality healthcare services. And that is what this community life center is about. It is about making really that, that dramatic improvement in primary healthcare. And in this case, we do that by combining many different solutions in one package and provide that to a facility. Martin, are you happy with the level of support you've received from the government and the different stakeholders in the community? Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, the result that we, uh, that we now inaugurated last week is a public-private partnership between Philips and the government of Kiambu County in Kenya. And they have really been our committed partner to co-create the future of primary health care together. So together with them, we worked, and I think we created something that is really unique and impactful, and also we've done it in a record time. Towards the future also, we will remain partners for this project, because now we come into a phase of ongoing monitoring and support, and also continuous improvements, and we will keep on partnering. And then from the community perspective, in this design of, that we've shown here, we really also involve the community in the design itself, because the aim of this project is really to improve life in the community, and that is also why we call it the Philips Community Life Centers. Now, Martin, why do you think improving access to primary health care is such a key challenge across Africa? Well, it's a complex problem. There are also many different causes and many different solutions that would apply all at the same time. One thing we found is that silo solutions, so individual solutions, are not enough to really make Mm -hmm. a big impact. So what we did here is we created really a total package. They're also going outside the typical healthcare way of providing solutions. So in this case, we started off with solar power to yeah. power the facility because we found that many of these facilities, they don't have access to electricity. And electricity is important, of course, for the healthcare equipment that we provide uh, with, with the trainings. But then it also starts with, for example, a refrigerator where we can put vaccines for the community, mm-hmm. but also indoor lighting because... Mothers are also delivering babies at night, right? So it's really important to have also lights inside so that the facility can operate at night as well. And then we add outdoor lights because the outdoor lights really improves the safety for the area around the the clinic so people can safely approach it. But we also see that the community benefits from this outdoor light. We see people gathering at night in those locations and they engage in, in social economic effects. So that is how these things come together. An example is the ultrasound machine that we put in this facility, and that is for screening for high-risk pregnancies, for example. Yeah. Now, Martin, are there plans to set up more community life centers in other parts of Africa? Yes, yes. I have now hired a person to lead the, the center in the Philips Africa Innovation Hub, and our ambition is really to scale this up, have similar offerings in primary healthcare facilities across the continent. I think that this will really be a huge contribution to the Philips mission that I was referring to, to improve the lives of people in Africa. We want to scale this across the continent. That was Martin van Harpen, head of the Philips Innovations Hub, on the line from the Netherlands, talking to Jazar Raad.
It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa has thousands of people experiencing kidney problems that cannot be treated because of lack of organ donations, insufficient dialysis machines and exclusion arising from other diseases. The National Health Department has urged people to donate kidneys to patients in need. Busiswa Jemsana reports. The health department says thousands of patients are put on a dialysis treatment while they wait for a kidney donor. While some are put on the treatment, others are rejected because of the insufficient dialysis machines to cater for all those affected. The department says people should focus on preventing kidney diseases before they occur. Departmental spokesperson Joe Mayila. Well, people are donating, but I don't think that people are donating at the, at the rate at which um, they need is, is, is there, and we need to make sure that we deal with this problem. Number one is that we obviously need to appeal to uh, members of the public to consider um, a, a organ donation, but also that we need to make sure that that we are preventing diseases uh, so that we must not have this kind of a problem going forward. I think that prevention is better than cure. Mpumele Loshandu, a KwaZulu-Natal patient who is on a dialysis treatment after he was diagnosed with kidney failure in 2011, says he fears that he might die before getting a kidney transplant. I'm living with that every day. I always think about dying every day. I always ask myself, oh, see, I'm, I'm going to die anytime soon before I'm totally kidney. And um, I, I wonder if ever I need a I've heard at the hospital that in in the last three years there were only about two donors who have donated with their kidneys. So I, I always think about dying every time. It's like living in hell. Meanwhile, Linda Lwamemese, who received a kidney transplant in 2012 after being on a dialysis for over five years, says patients diagnosed with kidney failure must not lose hope. And then I was dialysing from that, that 2005. After that, God he changed my life. He gave me a good gift, gave me a kidney. And then I said to the people, you must donate. And then I prayed to that. Is there too much? In one day they're going to get the kidney. A consultant physician at Frey Hospital in the Eastern Cape, Dr. Mervyn Griffiths, says people should watch their body weight in attempts to prevent these diseases. Well, of course, the most important thing is prevention. And um, unfortunately, South Africans are becoming a nation of overweight people. And that obesity often leads to high blood pressure and diabetes. And those are the two biggest causes of kidney failure. So being overweight is not a sign of health. In fact, it's a dangerous thing. And it's a warning sign that, in fact, we might help develop those chronic conditions, particularly high blood pressure and diabetes, which then may lead to kidney failure and other conditions may lead to stroke or heart failure. So that's the biggest thing, to maintain an active lifestyle, a healthy diet, avoid, avoid what we call fast foods or junk foods, and try and keep one's weight under control. The health department acknowledges that many people do not donate organs as a result of the lack of knowledge about organ donation. I'm Busisiwe Jamsana in the Eastern Cape. The murder trial of British businessman Shrian Diwani will resume in the Western Cape High Court in South Africa tomorrow. The long-awaited trial kicked off yesterday in a media frenzy. Diwani has pleaded not guilty to charges of murder, kidnapping, robbery with aggravating circumstances and conspiracy to commit crimes. He is alleged to have orchestrated the murder of his wife Annie 
while the couple was on honeymoon in Cape Town in November 2010. Lyndon Khan reports. Shirin Dewani recalled the evening his bride was killed. In a police statement to the court read out by his legal counsel, Francois Fanzel, he says after having dinner in Somerset West, taxi driver Zola Tonga drove them to Guguletu. He says the car came to a stop and he heard banging on the door. A man asked Tongo, have you got it? Referring to the 10,000 rand Dewani had set aside for a planned surprise helicopter ride around the city. Dewani says the man had a gun and his wife began screaming. He says his wife was ordered to hand over her rings before Shrin Dewani was shouted at to get out of the vehicle. As the door did not open, he said he climbed out of the window. Dewani then said the vehicle drove off and he frantically asked a passerby to call the police. However, they did not understand what he was saying. Dewani says when they found the vehicle, he saw Annie had been shot and killed and his world came tumbling down. He also detailed how he met Annie and became besotted with her, eventually surprising her with the marriage proposal in Paris in June 2010. Dewani became emotional when an email which he sent to Annie in 2010 after the proposal was read out in court. He was apologizing for being too controlling. He said even though they were both strong and opinionated, he knew she was the one. State pathologist Dr. Jeanette Fuster was the first witness to take the stand. She says a close-range gunshot caused Annie Duwani to suffer severe blood loss and she died within moments. Annie Duwani's family wept as the crime scene video was shown in court. It shows her lifeless body slumped over the back seat. She was dressed in a black cocktail dress and high heels. Shrindawani bowed his head and wept. Fistar said there were no signs of sexual violation, confirming she had not been raped. The state earlier asked the court that the witness list be kept private to prevent them from being approached. There is no indication as yet to who will testify when court proceedings resume. I am Lyndon Khan in Cape Town. Political parties in Mozambique are busy with their last campaigns for the upcoming presidential elections expected to take place next week. The main opposition, Renamo, led by Afonso Tlakama, believes that the people of Mozambique are ready for a new government. There are 30 political parties campaigning in this year's elections. Mutsibiwa Munaring reports. In 2009 elections, the ruling party Frilimo scored 74.66%, which was over 2 million votes, and was followed by Rinamo with 650,000 votes, amounting to 17.69%. The Mozambican Democratic Movement got 3.93%, which was more than 340,000 votes. During the last elections, over 9 million voters were registered to participate in the elections, but only 4 million people voted. The main opposition party, Renamo, says people of Mozambique want nothing but change. Renamo spokesperson Andre Makibire says his party is ready to take over the Mozambican government. The uh, Mozambican people now, they know that the, the only alternative uh, to change the way of life is in, in Mozambique is the Renamo party. That's what that we are looking forward and uh, in the 15th of October, after 24 hours, we will be coming, uh, we will win this election and go to the government. Makibire says when Renamo takes over the government, it will improve salaries of government employees. In case we won, we win the, this election, we will change fastly in the education areas and in the health areas, agriculture, in order that the teachers 
here in Mozambique, you know, the teachers and the, the nurses or doctors are the majority in the, uh, in the, in the, the civil services, uh, civil servants. They are the majority. We want to improve, to increase the salary of these people because they are the people dealing with our children, dealing with our, our health. They have to be well motivated in order they can work well. Meanwhile, the Mozambican Democratic Movement, led by David Simango, says besides their political intolerance in the country, they are continuing with their campaigns. The head of foreign affairs, Lynette Alfonso, says the party is ready to bring better living conditions to the people of Mozambique. We have our government plan. Uh, Mozambique, we need change. We need change our, uh, in the own sector in government. So opposition must take power for have a possibility to change something is wrong in this uh, ruling party. Some stay in, in government 30, 30 years is too much. The Mozambican Electoral Commission has reported that people living beyond the boundaries of Mozambique will be casting their votes three days before the election day. Headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. A report released by the Kenyan Independent Policing Oversight Authority says Kenya's intelligence and security agencies need to improve their coordination and command structures to avoid a repeat of the slow response to attacks in June that killed about 65 people. At least eight people have been killed in Cameroon in a rocket attack blamed on the militant group Boko Haram in neighboring Nigeria and dozens of Kurds stormed the national parliament in The Hague last night in protest against Islamic State fighters who are attacking a Kurdish town in northern Syria. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. A creative genius whose talents helped to define and refine South African society. That's how Chris Van Veek has been described as tributes continue to pour in for the author, poet and activist. The 57-year-old died in Johannesburg on Friday night after a battle with cancer. Van Veek was born in Soweto. He wrote more than 20 books, including Shirley, Goodness and Mercy, and also wrote a children's version of former President Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. His son Kevin says they didn't realize what an icon he really was until his death a few days ago. Senior reporter Melanie Moses has more. I think one of the amazing things that stands out is encouraging us to read and just to have a love of words and a love for literature, for knowledge and for living because um, I mean, what he taught us is that the more you know about the world, the better you look at it. Kevin van Veek describing the legacy his dad Chris has left behind. The author was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer earlier this year and died on Friday at the age of 57. The accomplished writer spent much of his time reflecting on the atrocities of apartheid. He also celebrated South Africa's struggle stalwarts. 
The ANC has paid tribute to Van Veik, saying he was a distinguished South African who emerged in the ranks of those who defied and challenged the inhumane system of apartheid at the height of its viciousness. The party says Van Veik captured the importance of fighting for a democratic society. Arts and Culture's Sandile Memela says Van Veik so aptly captured the history of our country in his poems and stories. He stands out as an example of an artist who used his talent and creativity not only to fight using humor and writing to point out the absurdity of the previous apartheid system, but he helps to define uh, the type of society that we all aspired after. Publisher Terry Morris of Pan Macmillan started working with Van Veek in 2003. She says he was an incredible writer, poet and storyteller. So a master of words across the various genres and an incredible man in terms of his humor, his storytelling. He always had a wonderful wit, but underlying the wit was, was a deep sense of understanding of the political uh, environment and he really used his words to stand up against the system like apartheid. The poem In Detention was one of Van Veek's most popular, touching on the suspicious deaths that befell political prisoners during apartheid. Using repetition and variation, Van Veek questions the shallow explanations offered by the security police for deaths in detention. Here it is, as read by Angie Kapalianis. He fell from the ninth floor. He hanged himself. He slipped on a piece of soap while washing. He hanged himself. He slipped on a piece of soap while washing. He fell from the ninth floor. He hanged himself while washing. He slipped from the ninth floor. He hung from the ninth floor. He slipped on the ninth floor while washing. He fell from a piece of soap while slipping. He hung from the ninth floor. He washed from the ninth floor while slipping. He hung from a piece of soap while washing. The poem is also used as a set work in schools. Morris says his memoir, Surely Goodness and Mercy, also touched people's lives. It was warm, it was funny, and yet it was sad. There was an undertone of growing up uh, in, in, in a poor community. But it was made into a play. It was adapted by Janice Honeyman and Chris himself into a play. It was magical in terms of people remembering their own childhood and also finding out about other communities that they didn't possibly know about. Van Vey came from humble beginnings. His son Kevin recalls the time they lived in a caravan in their grand's backyard. On a very cold morning, I think it was 1984, I was about three and a half years old. We went to a farm where one of my father's friends had a caravan he wasn't using to go and collect the caravan and uh, we towed it back to Rivoline and it was sitting in the corner of the yard and that's where I lived. That was my home for, I think, three years. When I started grade one in 1987, we were supposed to draw a picture of our houses and I drew a house with wheels. It was obviously a tiny caravan. It was not suitable for a family to live in, but for me it was home. In April 87, my parents managed to afford a house and we bought a house um, in Liverpool. He says the last few days have made him realize what an impact his dad really had. There are people out there who held my father in high esteem and really you know, respected him and looked up to him. It gives you a sense of, of happiness and pride. You know, It's something you, you can look back on and think to yourself, geez. Somebody who I just knew as daddy um, was a respected elder to many, to many other people. And that was, that was quite nice to see.
Kevin van Veek ending that report by our senior reporter Melanie Moses in Johannesburg. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, a period film about the personal stories running through the horror of slavery in the former Dutch colony of Suriname will be showing in Johannesburg in South Africa tonight as part of the 10th Latin American and Caribbean Film Festival hosted by the Gordon Institute of Business Science, Gibbs. The film title, The Cost of Sugar, was partly shot in South Africa. In an exclusive interview with Channel Africa, the ambassador of Suriname to Pretoria, Professor Wilfred Rosewall, says that, like South Africa, Suriname is a rainbow nation and a model of integration and tolerance. He explained to Channel Africa's Janine Gutzer why his country, situated on the far northern tip of South America, has a diplomatic presence in South Africa. It's very far, yes. 20 hours flight, you can go through Amsterdam and you can also go through Brazil. But Brazil will take you longer because of the connection. So why an embassy here in South Africa 20 hours away? Yes, well, because our history is one. Our history brings us together. As you said, we understand Dutch, (laughs) we understand Afrikaans. You know, and so we can communicate. That's one thing. Our history, because the Dutch were here, they uh, established Cape Town, and they were there establishing Suriname and changing New York with Suriname, with the people of United Kingdom. They gave Suriname to the Dutch, and the Dutch gave New York to the English. Another thing is, we are both two rainbow nations, Suriname and South Africa. We have a lot of similarities in terms of natural resources, in terms of history, human beings, etc., etc. So we have to add value to our populations and bring development in Suriname and South Africa as well. And my mission here is to get both countries engaged totally. And one of the things is that this film is establishing a kind of engagement between Suriname, South Africa, and the Netherlands, of course. You've just said your position here, and the aim of the mission is to add value. And I was about to ask you, before you talked about the cultural similarities, both of us being so-called rainbow nations, in practical terms, on the economic front, on the trade front, what kind of ties are there between our two countries? We are at this moment, very moment, busy to establish cooperation in the mining sector. As I said, we are rich of minerals. The World Bank has declared Suriname to be the 17th richest country in the world because we have gold, bauxite, aluminum. We were the largest producer in the world since the Second World War. We have oil, big oil company, and we're busy finalizing a second one, and it will be uh, operational in December this year. We have untouched gas. We have untouched things like diamonds, iron ore, manganese, etc. We have more than 90% pristine rainfall. So we have a lot of things in which we want to share with South Africa. And South Africa has the knowledge. So last year I went with 11 representatives of gold mining and other mining companies to my country. We came back and then there was another delegation from Suriname here and we submitted three projects on gold mining. This year I went with four 
representative, one of Geoscience Institute here, there's mineral resources. And the minister, our minister, also confirmed that this year he wants to set up further cooperation with the geoscience, to set up a geoscience a mineral institute, to help to set up and to maintain the geoscience uh, department at the University in Suriname. So those are some of the engagements. I submitted an arts and culture agreement as well. We are ready. So the government is waiting for the government of South Africa to sign that agreement. So then we can do a lot of things, among others, to produce film together, to do a lot of other things together. I really think that not many people from Southern Africa, from us here in Africa, knows about Suriname. Tell me about no, your country. Are the it's people true. as jolly as one would think people from Latin America and the Caribbean will be? Just a few things about your country. Okay. So we have a very diverse society, a population, as I said, a rainbow nation. The history is the Dutch people tried to make the Red Indians there after Columbus went there to their slaves. It did not happen. It was a failure. Then they went to the west coast of Africa, and there they brought thousands of Negroes, our predecessors, to Suriname until 1863. Then came the abolition of slavery, and then they went to China and took thousands of Chinese in 1873 to Suriname. After that, the Chinese were not so able to do plantation work, cotton, sugar, and so on, the same plantations as here in KwaZulu, Natal, Mpuhang, etc. So they took thousands of East Indians to Suriname. That was a success to an extent, but then you have our types of rights. And then they went to Indonesia to bring thousands of Indonesia from Java, Sumatra, Borneo, and so on to Suriname. So it is a rainbow nation, and the culture is a tapestry of all types of diverse culture in, in food, in clothes, yes, in music, dancing, everything. So Suriname is just like South Africa, South America, a very just and very happy society. And it's a, a model for the world where different people of different religious orientation as well. You can see there the mosque close beside the Jewish temple. So no problem at all. They cooperate together, you know, so it is a, an example for the world. That was the ambassador of Suriname to South Africa, Professor Wilfred Roswell, talking to Channel Africa's Janine Kutzer. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Business activity in Egypt has extended at a near record pace in September with a nascent economic recovery, encouraging companies to hire for the first time in nearly two and a half years. Egypt's economy has been hit by more than three years of political and economic turmoil following the 2011 uprising that toppled Hosni Mubarak after 30 years in power. The government is trying to strike a balance between cutting its deficit whilst reviving economic growth which fell to 2.1% in the 2012-13 fiscal year and remains a far slower than the pace needed to create enough jobs for a youthful population of 86 million. Increased output and a sharp rise in new orders last month, however, appeared to suggest that confidence was beginning to return. 
Barclays Bank has supported more than 10,000 small and medium enterprises countrywide and pledges to enhance financial inclusion, particularly in rural areas. Barclays Bank Managing Director Xavier Chibia says that the bank supports more than 10,000 SMEs in the country by providing them with specialized services such as business clubs and value propositions. Chibia says financial inclusion still remains a challenge in Zambia, even though after 50 years of independence, Barclays Bank, uh, Zambia, had one of the largest footprints in the country, having expanded from 17 branches and 25 ATMs in 2007 to the current 55 branches and 151 ATMs. The South African rand has climbed 1% against the US dollar as investors lauded the appointment of Lesitja Khanyakho to succeed Jill Marcus as Reserve Bank Governor. Khanyakho says the bank's primary objective is to protect the value of the rand, to support sustainable economic growth as well as keeping the financial system stable and inflation under control. Economists say Khanyakho's appointment is a choice the market has positioned itself for. Fitch Ratings says South African money market funds are highly unlikely to achieve a, or rather, a triple A national fund credit rating. Without a structural change in the market, these funds are too concentrated to achieve the highest possible South African national scale rating, which applies to local market rand nominated entities, despite the high credit quality of the issuers in most portfolios. According to Fitch, South African MMFS would not qualify as money market funds under applicable U.S. or European regulation. Angola Central Bank says that the economy should grow at an annual average rate of 5% over the next four years, boosted by the increasing participation of the private sector. The International Monetary Fund said this month growth was likely to slow to 3.9% in 2014 from an estimated 6.8% last year. With strong agricultural production offsetting a drop in oil output, it says that for that to happen, it was key that the financial sector becomes more Competitive indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar eleven two eight South African Rand nine one eight Botswana Pula six two seven Zambian Kwacha zero six two British pound zero seven nine euro commodities market platinum one two or five dollars gold one two four eight dollars an ounce brand crude nine two six three cents a barrel economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Sheikhs Mashaba, the head coach of the South African senior men's team, says overcoming an artificial playing pitch will be a major hurdle for the national team ahead of their first leg 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Congo Brazzaville this weekend. The match takes place in Pontinua. 
coach Sheikh Smashaba has pleaded with the media and the public at large to focus on the team's positives. He says he does expect hostility in Congo. On the other hand, Mashaba is happy that Bafana will play back-to-back matches with the Red Devils. You know the good thing, I know people will take it as bad, playing this game back-to-back and finish. Because if we're going to play today and wait for another three weeks, it's going to be a problem. The only worry is the time factor. It will be important for this team to qualify for AFCON 2015. That will serve as a springboard towards the 2018 World Cup. Everybody loves a winner. We want to do best, qualify for this tournament on offer. Then that gives our football authority that it deserves. Meanwhile, South Africa's under-20 captain Abuyela Magagwa will not travel with the team due to a calf strain. Bafana team doctor Tulani Nguenya says he has been in touch with Magagwa's team. I escaped Town concerning his injury. Ayabulela sustained a calf muscle strain during a game. He was examined by the Dr. Ikes and the clinical findings said that he's got a strain. Fortunately, I watched the game. I saw Aya limping and then I called uh, the doctor concerned in Ikes. It's a query grade 2 strain. Meanwhile, Nigeria's national football team forward Victor Moses will miss this month's Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers against Sudan after a reoccurrence of a thigh injury. The 23-year-old was forced off after only 18 minutes of Stokes City's 3-1 defeat at Sunderland on Saturday. Nigeria caretaker coach Stephen Keshi has called up Dolphin striker Emen Odog as a replacement. Stoke boss Mark Hu says Moses will be sent for more tests during the international break. The new injury setback will come as a big blow for Moses, who has not played for the Super Eagles since the second round 2-0 loss to France at the World Cup in Brazil. Out of contract, Nigeria coach Keshi overlooked Moses for the, sh- for the shock 3-2 home defeat to Congo and the goalless draw in South Africa last month, saying the player is out of form. South Africa's senior women's team has arrived in Namibia ahead of the start of the 2014 Women's Championships this weekend. Manana faced Cameroon in their opening match of the group at the Independence Stadium on Sunday. Head coach Vera Pau says a win in their first match will improve the team's chances of reaching the knockout stages of the tournament. Pau is pleased with the fitness levels of the players and how their preparations for the tournament, tournament have went. We have every single training session we've improved. There's not been one session that we went down. So I don't know where our limits are, but um, physically we, were, we are ready, um, at least at the max, what we can get in this period of time. Um, it is not their top because they're growing every single training session yet uh, uh, again, but it's the best that we can get so far. And finally, in tennis news, South Africa's Kevin Anderson has battled into the second round of the Shanghai Tennis Masters, Matt Brown reports. Anderson has celebrated reaching a career-high 16 in the world rankings, recovering from dropping the first set to beat British qualifier James Ward, 3-6-6-3-6-2. The 28-year-old South African rallied impressively from a sluggish start to set up a second-round showdown with Kazakhstan's Mikhail Kukushkin. Really pleased with the way I turned it around, and you know, by the end I, I felt I was starting to find my feet and uh, definitely uh, find my form as well.
US Open champ Marin Cilic is finding life as a Grand Slam winner tough right now. Storming through the field in New York, the Croat lost early in Beijing to Andy Murray last week and he's now been bounced out in the first round here by compatriot Ivo Karlovic. The score 7-5, 2-6, Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has appointed his deputy William Ruto as the country's acting president for the duration he will be away attending his case at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. And political parties in Mozambique are busy with their last campaigns for the upcoming presidential elections expected to take place next week. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumgard, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Ndando with Abangani Bamanga.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band.